This morning, the mass exodus in Ukraine reaching historic levels. Now, the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. On uh, February 24, at 5 a.m., my mother called me and said that Russia had attacked us and they didn't know what to do. And I immediately told her that they should come to Slovakia. Dana is from Mykolaiv, a city not far from Odessa in southern Ukraine. When the war started, she was in Slovakia, where she's been studying. But her family and friends were still in her home country. Uh, my parents were very scared. At first, they wanted to stay at home, but I have a younger sister. So they decided that they needed to take her out of the country. Her family was part of the first wave of refugees to leave Ukraine. They drove all the way to the Slovakian border, a thousand kilometre journey. Uh, they were on the road for several days without sleep, without rest. All the way they were... Um, accompanied by sirens and explosions. My sister is 14 years old. She's a very sensitive person. I don't know. Um, I can't imagine how they felt. Uh, my mother says that humor and music helped. Dana's family managed to arrive safely. The generosity of the Slovakians was immediate. So my family are safe now. One Slovak invited them to live in his house, but they have no friends and connections here. You know, they are scared. This is horrible. Their lives will never be the same again. But I'm surprised how positive they are. They are very grateful to the Slovaks for their help. This is not the end of their story as refugees. Like so many millions of others, this is just the beginning. Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast, looking at the far-reaching impacts of a war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. In each episode, we'll seek to answer different questions raised by the invasion of Ukraine. In this edition, we'll be looking at the refugee crisis. Within a month of the war starting, 10 million people were forced to leave their homes, becoming refugees as a result. The majority stayed in Ukraine, but in this episode, we'll mainly be focusing on the over 4 million people who have left the country. So, do numbers alone define a refugee crisis? Are we doing enough to protect these vulnerable people? And what risks do they face when they take this terrifying journey? First, I wanted to find out more about what the situation looked like on the ground. So I spoke to Chung Argadini Williams, Head of Global Communications at the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. So, Chung'a, is the scale and pace of this refugee movement comparable to anything we've seen recently in Europe? It is one of the most significant refugee exodus crises that we've seen in decades. Um, I've been doing this work for about 25 years, and the only other refugee emergencies that I would compare it to would be the Rwanda crisis, where we had about 4 million refugees as well, but that was over several months. What we're looking at is millions of people leaving within the first few weeks, and then also millions other that are internally displaced inside Ukraine. Moving 10 million people nearly across a large country in a month is, is an extraordinary thing. How did it actually happen? 
The story that I hear most when I speak to refugees is how unplanned and unexpected their displacement was. The majority of people that I spoke to had just minutes to decide to leave. Um, Many of them didn't even have time to pack properly. They didn't have their documents. It's because the nature of the conflict itself, the war inside Ukraine, progressed so quickly with such unprecedented um, violence and brutality that people were waiting, hoping that the worst wouldn't happen. And when it did, they quickly had to leave their homes, leave their towns. How did the infrastructure cope with this? I I read that the train, the rail service in Ukraine is still operating largely. Honestly, I feel that the, the infrastructure continued to move people out of Ukraine against all odds. So I was in both Poland and Hungary recently where I I saw these trains coming in and they were completely full. And the schedules, of course, were not predictable because it depended on when there was a safe moment um, and when there was petrol. But the the organization was quite astounding. And I would say the, the organization and the infrastructure on the other side, so in Poland, in Moldova, in Romania, in Hungary, It's been quite phenomenal to see all of the national authorities, as well as, I would say, the thousands and thousands of um, local responders and volunteers who came out to support the reception and and aid the refugees as they were arriving. And who are the people crossing the border in terms of the, the Ukrainians who are actually leaving the country? I have rarely been in a refugee situation where I have seen so few boys and men because of the conscription and because of martial law inside Ukraine and because the fact that the Ukrainian men for the most part are staying they're they're staying in the country to fight and uh, defend their homes and so i think you know there were so many cases where i would see i saw two sisters that came on their own with six children between them one of the sisters had a three-month-old in one arm and a two-year-old in another and had an eight-year-old dragging behind her. So if you can imagine walking and getting on a bus for days, she didn't have any other hand. She just has the two hands to carry her children. So she had a backpack and that's all that she came over with. She came over with one change of clothes, a couple of nappies and you know a, a few items for the kids and that was it. Is there anything when you went to the border that struck you as unique or are there any moments uh, that really stuck with you? Witnessing witnessing families who were literally saying goodbye to each other where the wives and the the children weren't sure if they would see their, their husbands and fathers again or when they would be reunited. Um, it was it was very hard to watch that. Um, it was hard to watch these men who were clearly trying to be very stoic and and really believed in what they were doing turn around and walk back into Ukraine at the borders. The other thing is there were just mounds of donations of things. So there was there was literally like a three meter high mound of nappies. There were rows of prams that were there for babies. There were loads of of sleeping blankets and winter clothing because it was still freezing as people were arriving. 
there were also mounds of like dog toys and leashes and collars and you know being a a, a pet owner myself it was really quite heartwarming because i think those of us that have pets understand that you wouldn't want to be able to make that choice of leaving your pet when you know that the country is at war and everything is falling around you so it was exceptionally moving to see all of the furry creatures um cats i saw birds i saw rabbits and lots of dogs we were talking about one of the largest movements of people in modern history how do you judge poland hungary romania's ability to take in this scale of refugees one thing that we've been saying since the last time that there was a major refugee movement in Europe which was in 2015 is that if it's managed if it's organized there is absolutely the possibility for Europe to be able to sustain and support large refugee numbers in every large scale refugee crisis it is the neighboring countries that host the most people. So for example, with Syria, 6 million Syrians are actually living in the countries around Syria still. And this is 10 years later, it's Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Turkey. This is the way that it always works. I think what the difference that we're seeing is that even further into parts of Western Europe, we're seeing an openness and unanimous solidarity and a warmth that I, I hope can be extended to, to other refugees who are fleeing the same brutal type of, of war and persecution that, that Ukrainian refugees are. The scale of the situation is as clear as the need for urgent action. But what I wanted to understand better is the mechanisms European states have for providing support to refugees and why this situation is so different to other so-called refugee crises. For that, I spoke to Emily Venturi, expert on EU refugees at Chatham House, and I started by asking her what exactly European nations were doing. What we've seen is that the European Union and all its governments have acted very quickly, they've acted together, they've acted decisively in what is really an unprecedented showing uh, of solidarity towards refugees for Europe. Practically, for example, the European Union has taken the significant step to activate the Temporary Protection Directive. This means that those fleeing Ukraine can access harmonised rights across the EU for three years. So this includes residence, housing, medical assistance, access to the labour market, education. It also means that Ukrainians bypass lengthy examinations of their individual asylum applications. So we're really seeing a shift in how the European Union is acting. In the face of a cost of living crisis, of post-COVID economies, how can European governments afford to take in this many people long term? Arguably, the humanitarian and the moral cases um, for accepting refugees are immediately a lot more compelling. The economic argument itself can be a bit trickier um, to make. And we've seen in the past a lot of political leaders within Europe and across the world present refugees and migrants as burdens. However, what we see is that actually most research shows that over the long term, if refugees are allowed to work and contribute, refugees help economies grow, they expand a nation's productive capacity, you know, refugees can pay taxes, they can start businesses, they are active contributors to economies. And on the flip side, Europe does rely a lot on labour migration already. 
However, as you also note, it's also important to acknowledge that in the short term, countries do face initial costs, specifically in the humanitarian response, and I would add at the local level. A really stark example is that one in 10 people in Poland is now Ukrainian. You know, it's important that European responsibility sharing is followed up in the long term. This does mean not only availability to resettle Ukrainians, but also to commit financial contributions to communities on the neighboring borders with Ukraine. So to make it clear, most European governments don't allow asylum seekers to work. So usually there is a very long bureaucratic process um, that accompanies an asylum application. Many asylum seekers can wait up to three years for their asylum case to be decided. And so this state of limbo does not allow many asylum seekers in Europe to work. Once refugee status is granted, then refugees can mostly work. However, a lot of support is needed for integration. What we're seeing in the Ukrainian case is that the, the lengthy bureaucratic asylum application processes are bypassed. This is very different from how Europe has treated other refugees from other countries as well. Let's take for granted that refugee crises are crises for the refugees. But I, I tend to feel that in the West or in the UK, when we talk about the refugee crisis, there's an implication that the victims are actually the states that are dealing with the crisis, you know, the European refugee crisis. If it is possible to take in such a large number of refugees, what made previous crises crises? I think you've hit the nail on the head. And what we see specifically within European media and European political elite in the past is a quickness to refer to refugee crises. And as you say, place the focus on European governments um, rather than people who have been uprooted from their homes as well. What's been interesting has been to see how quickly, how many people in the media have pointed to how this response is more manageable. But I would actually say that here, the political willingness to do so is the big difference. So in other words, what we've seen previously is not a refugee crisis um, in terms of numbers or capacity to respond. Arguably, what we've seen previously is a management crisis, a political willingness crisis on the European side to respond. I think it's also important to note that, you know, the way that the media and political elites have often portrayed, you know, refugee crises and, and migrant inv invasions to Europe is very factually incorrect and quite Eurocentric. In the case of Syria, for example, when millions of people were forced to flee from, from war, the vast majority were internally displaced or hosted in neighboring countries such as Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey. A very small minority made it to Europe. I would also add that we cannot talk about European differential treatments of and sort of nominations of so-called refugee crises in Europe without also taking into account serious cases and allegations of racism, Islamophobia, and overall discrimination within how European governments have responded to asylum and migration issues. I mean, we saw, we saw only a few months before the war started, the Belarusian government fomenting essentially a crisis with very small numbers of Middle Eastern refugees, comparable to the numbers of, of Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine. In terms of the civil society response, we've been talking about governments and governments will, but what's the civil society response looked like? What we've seen, especially at the local level in neighboring countries, has been an outpouring of civil society solidarity, which has actually, in many cases, driven and enabled the emergency response. We've seen volunteers, nonprofits, religious organizations, charities, local authorities, 
been some of the first people to welcome Ukrainians um, and provide that emergency aid, food, medical support, psychological support, and temporary accommodation as well. And also, I would note, there's a stark difference with how European citizens and civil society organizations responding to other arrivals of asylum seekers has taken place. We've actually seen civil society increasingly criminalized um, across Europe. Some examples are the criminalization of search and rescue operations um, in the Mediterranean Sea, which have affected nonprofits and private citizens in Greece and Italy. In Poland as well, nonprofits, media organizations, and humanitarian organizations were prevented and still are prevented from accessing Poland's border with Belarus, where, as you, as you mentioned, you know, a very small number of asylum seekers, mostly from Asian and Middle Eastern countries, are trapped um, in freezing forests. Would you say that European governments have then outsourced some of the kind of emergency aid to deal with the scale of this crisis? Well, I think we'd need to look on a case-by-case basis at the different European countries um, in question. If we think about Poland, for example, uh, the country that has received the most Ukrainian refugees, civil society has played a huge role. Private citizens have played a huge role. So there I would say the response of the government and civil society do go hand in hand. In the UK case, for example, there's been a lot of debate as to whether the government is outsourcing to civil society and private citizens. And in this case, I would actually say that these concerns are very valid. Uh, We've seen, for example, in the United Kingdom, quite a restricted government response. The government has launched a family visa scheme for Ukrainians who already have immediate family in the UK um, and has also launched the Homes for Ukraine scheme as well, where people in the UK can nominate an individual or a family to stay with them. So here we see quite a, quite a clear example of sort of an outsourcing on UK citizens as well. The government is arguably also not fully in line with international refugee law because you do not need a visa to apply for asylum. Um, individuals have the right to seek and claim asylum without needing to apply for a visa and go through lengthy bureaucratic processes. Are there any other dangers to this outsourcing or just generally just hoping that a a large scale private response will help deal with this crisis? Absolutely, there are some important risks. I would say firstly, the risk is that solidarity will run out, um, especially if the war continues and the refugee crisis become protracted. Um, So for example, anecdotally, we've started to hear of a shift in Poland already Big cities such as Warsaw have seen their population grow by 15%. And the immediate humanitarian response will need to be sustained um, in, in the long term as well. A second risk is that you know people who have been displaced um, are very vulnerable. Many of the Ukrainians leaving Ukraine are women and children. Through private responses, the risks such as human trafficking and exploitation are very high. What I would say is that this points towards the strong need for a robust state-led asylum system that complements what we've seen as an outpouring of solidarity from private individuals and civil society. But something that Emily mentioned there at the end, uh, those criminal organisations and people traffickers uh, kept coming up in our conversations and I'd seen more and more reports about this in the media and by aid organisations. For predators and human traffickers, war is not a tragedy. It is an opportunity. And women and children are the targets. That was Antonio Guterres, uh, the the UN Secretary General, talking to journalists only three weeks into the war. This issue's only got worse, and it's clear that it's incredibly urgent, that we really need to understand it and properly address it. So I I got in contact with Sonia Skeets, Chief Executive of Freedom from Torture, and I started by asking her 
how easy it is for criminal organisations to take advantage of the most vulnerable people crossing the border. Terribly easy, unfortunately, because what we're seeing here is a mass displacement of people. There is this very unregulated activity happening. You know, millions of people who are spilling across borders, trying to get to safety. We've got aid agencies and others scrambling to put facilities in place to help people to reach safety. You've got all kinds of private actors getting in cars, travelling across Europe, desperate to help. It's such a chaotic situation that there are countless opportunities for people with, you know, non-benign purposes to come in and to approach women and children and to say that they're there to help them, to get them safe passage through the Germany, bundling them in cars, and that's the last that we're seeing of them. So it's very, very easy in these kinds of chaotic displacement for gangs to target people who are so vulnerable and drag them in to criminal networks. Do we have any firm numbers? for how many women or children have been abducted already? Or is it such a chaotic scene that we just have no idea? There are no firm numbers, but there have been concerns that hundreds of lone children, for example, have just simply gone missing. So that just gives you a sense of the scale. We also are very concerned because Many of the NGO actors operating on the borders are reporting this suspicious activity of people who are being tricked into vans, being told that they're going to be given safe passage and accommodation and perhaps even a a job to walk into in some other part of Western Europe and, you know, only being rescued when NGOs or other authorities have thought that the van looked suspicious or that the men who were conducting women to these vans looked suspicious. And so we can infer from that that for every you know criminal who has been intercepted and identified, there are bound to be countless others who are getting away with it. And this is the, one of the big problems with trafficking is that it is something that happens in the shadows. The women and children who are being uh, abducted, what generally is happening to them? Is it all sex trafficking or other other industries which we should look out for? So trafficking involves the exploitation for slavery, forced labour, prostitution or other types of sexual uh, exploitation. And all of these things might be at play for those who are falling victim to these kinds of gangs exploiting this situation in, in Ukraine. But another dimension that I think is going to be very likely to emerge here is offers of accommodation to you know, desperate women and children that come in exchange for sexual exploitation or for, you know, forced labour in homes. So there's also this, if you like, this low-key risk of, of trafficking and exploitation that doesn't necessarily involve gangs as well. So that's something that here in the United Kingdom, for example, we're already starting to see evidence of, of, you know, lone men coming onto these Facebook pages and, you know, connecting with Ukrainian women who are desperate for accommodation and seeking to have a match for the purposes of the Homes for Ukraine scheme. And then it's sort of emerging that, you know, these offers are conditional, you know, in exchange for sex or marriage, all sorts of things like that. So there is this kind of informal, non-criminal network-based exploitation, which we also need to be on the watch for. 
So what are the states doing? Because you've spoken about the NGO organisations, aid organisations, but the individual states haven't come up. What are the states of the EU doing to combat this? Well, let's start with Ukraine, who are obviously very, very worried about what is happening to their women and children. They are trying to put in place protection systems, particularly for children. So we know that the Ukrainian officials have put in place some evacuation systems requiring people to take with them as much documentation and to have notification systems back into Ukraine when they leave the country. So the Ukraine is itself trying to do some things. Poland apparently has just started to check the status of humanitarian workers who are operating out of some of the border sites. And we know that the EU Commission has launched a network of anti-trafficking coordinators. And it's terribly important that there is excellent information sharing between civil society actors and statutory agencies operating in all of the countries to which refugees are flowing. So there are a number of mechanisms that are being put in place, but it is still fairly haphazard, unfortunately. Does the UK differ in any way to the rest of the European response? The trafficking risks are going to be acute here in Britain, precisely because the government is relying on these systems for housing people that fall out with the clear control of public authority. Because once people do arrive, most of them will be directed into uh, informal accommodation, private homes of people who have volunteered uh, for the scheme to house Ukrainian refugees. So that's just something that we need to keep a particular eye on. And many human rights organisations working with survivors of sexual abuse and refugees are particularly concerned about this risk of sexual exploitation and other forms of forced exploitation here in Britain. It's a very going to be a particularly acute issue here, we think. So it's become clear to me in all these conversations that one of the main things we need to do is basically reframe our understanding of refugee crises. And this goes beyond the Ukraine crisis. And also, This episode, as I said at the top, we've been focusing on the Ukrainians leaving the country. But within Ukraine, the crisis is even more marked. It seems paramount that we really focus in on compassion. And it also seems that compassion is one of the reasons why the refugee crisis from the war in Ukraine isn't a bigger issue. If there weren't all these people willing to give up their homes, their time, their money then we would be in a really terrible situation. That said, the politicians can also hide behind this to shirk making tough decisions of their own. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Dana, Chungar Gadini-Williams, Emily Venturi and Sonia Skeets for talking to us in this difficult and hectic time. In our next episode, we'll explore the impact of war in Ukraine on global food supplies and prices. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss it. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies with help from David Dargahi. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.